Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Edge Backstage Pass, the weekly podcast from the Tuesday night show at the London comedy store, The Edge. This week our cheerful troupe laugh their way through a wide variety of topics as we discuss our ages, our memories and our hair. Oh, and we had a small false start because Jenny forgot her own name. Hello, I'm Jenny Collier, and I'm in London, and I need my roots done. Hello, my name's Leo. I'm also in London. I've got I've got my roots moved to a different part of my head. I had a hair <laughs> transplant. You see that? Wow. The new roots, fresh roots. Got the hairline of a eight-year-old Victorian boy. Hello, I'm Ian Stone, and um, yeah, I'm in London too. And I could probably make some hair gag, but you know, fuck it. Is it any point? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just saying. Christ um, my. Hello, I'm Rob Deering. I'd love to say I was in Wales just to break things up, but I'm back. I'm back in London. But I was in Wales the other day, and my hair defies gravity like the song in Wicked. It has always been upright, your hair. It has always sort of... You know, I think I think people always assume that um, that that is based entirely on product, but I only tame it with product. It goes straight from my head in an Art Garfunkel style. That's grow upwards. It's impressive. Wow. Yeah. Whereabouts in Wales were you? I was in South Wales, near Bridgend, uh, Southern Down. Did you get called a dirty COVID English bastard? I was sometimes I met people out and about, and I could see that kind of sinking feeling in their eyes when they heard my <laughs> accent. Um, uh, <laughs> much the way that I'm more used to that in Glasgow normally that, that kind of oh hell I mean I started talking to you I didn't realise you were going to be that guy um, <laughs> uh, yeah that was uh, but it was I was always two metres away from these people so that was fine good I'm glad they welcomed you yeah, they've Welcome been doing that in Glasgow, in, not in Glasgow, in uh, Scotland, at the border. They've had people at the border literally telling English people to go home, like some sort of like... <laughs> Scottish. Official people or just, just members of the public? Well, they're members of the public, but Nicola Sturgeon took like 48 hours to denounce them, and she denounced them very uh, in a very lightweight way. She said, you know, they shouldn't be allowed any battered food or something. And uh, basically, so that's... They're her militia. They're her Hezbollah. <laughs> yeah. They're like uh, doing her dirty work for her. And she, she's the Iranian fu- funding them or something. Is it fair? I, uh, what she said was uh, pretty, I can quote her directly. She said, after 48 hours waiting for a response, what she said in the end was, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to happen, is it, Scottish independence? I mean, it, it can't happen, can it? Because... Devolved government can always be sort of over, you know, it, it can be trumped, as it were, by <laughs> by the proper government. That's the point, right? So yeah, it, it can't happen. I think I think it might happen though. There's a big appetite for it in Scotland because oh, yeah, uh, it, it doesn't matter how big the appetite is unless people are on the streets. Why would the yeah. British government grant Scottish independence to the Scots? Why would they do that? I don't know, but I wish I wish they'd either do it or not do it, because like at the moment, like because we've got the SNP having their own like devolved thing, they've got to make everything slightly different. So all the rules in Scotland are just slightly different. So the gyms aren't open in Scotland. I'm a member of a gym in Scotland. I can't use the English ones because my gym in Scotland's not open yet. And it's like if they just opened the one in Scotland, I could like use the ones in England. So that's why I'm fat. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it a sensible move to keep a gym closed though at the moment? I mean, I'm not. It, I'm not, I mean, we can, we can get into the wider context of whether there is a sensible move for all of this, but... Well, from a business, 
from a business perspective in Scotland, it's a good idea to keep the gym closed because you're going to have like three customers. Yeah. Let's, let's be uh, culturally respectful here. It's a gym in England. In Scotland, it's called a jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> in Wales, it's called a... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the other thing about Scottish independence is, you know, when the, the, the vote was, there was an element of staying uh, in the union because it's staying in Europe because there was loads of uh, nicely arranged funding yeah. for yeah. societal things, community stuff you know, uh, sports centres, gyms, football fields. And between Brexit and uh, 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 economic crash, that whole uh, setup, it's just independence would be a lot easier in the next couple of years because there's a lot less to be lost because it's all gone anyway. Yeah. You can't blame, you can't blame anyone for wanting, wanting to get away from the English at the moment, can you? Really? <laughs> We're really a poisonous bunch, I think, looking at our leadership. I genuinely yeah. feel that. And I just think, you know, I mean, my, I've got kids who uh, their mum's Irish. They're getting an Irish passport. You know, right. I'm stuck, yeah. but they can get sorted out and I can't blame them. It's not that I hate English people. I just hate the sort of Englishness that some of the upper echelons of government seem to think should be. That's how we should be. It's, it's awful. Is an yeah. Irish passport like an English passport, but you pour a little bit of brandy onto it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's exactly how it is. Yes. <laughs> but brandy is spelt with an e. What? That's quite a complicated spirit-based culture joke. Sorry, everyone. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> but um, uh, I agree. Totally agree with you in about being English. It's like the, the perspective. That kind of uh, hey, we're English. This is what we think. It's like you can only sustain it if you ignore everything. Uh, all the other people in the world, everything that's going on in other countries, including other countries that are very nearby, and even things that kind of like doctors and, and, and economists are saying. And people are like, yeah, but I don't want to wear a mask. Dominic Cummings. It's just, it's a really uncomfortable <laughs> scenario. Yeah. Mm. That is, I mean, I remember in the 90s when the English football team were followed by a load of racists racist more i mean there were there are still some there now but back in the 90s and 80s when they used to sing songs about the ira and no surrender and all that sort of stuff and i must admit i was torn i'd watch them and i'd want to support the team and let the, get the team do well uh, do well but i used to think i don't want these bastards to enjoy it i hated them <laughs> and i and i sort of felt i really did feel a bit conflicted by the whole thing and i think that changed a little bit after Gaza and Three Lions and all that stuff. And then it became yeah. okay to have the George, uh, St. George's Cross. But I just feel it's been appropriated again by- If um, everyone could win, lose football, that would be the best. If each team <laughs> lost every time, then it would be my favorite. <laughs> Some people would get quite angry. I mean, I think- Everyone would be angry. Everyone <laughs> would be angry if that I happened. Think, yeah, yeah, I don't know if that would fix it. But I miss, I miss the glory days of English football hooliganism. There used to be a sort of proxy war against other countries. We'd send our best and bravest over to, like, you know, throw plastic chairs into the town fountain in Marseille or whatever. Yep, yep. And they ruck against them. And now we've locked them all up and they're not allowed to fly. We've got the wrong idea. Now, like, Russia. Russia's got the right idea. They train. <laughs> they get military training for their football hooligans. People over, they've got like, uniforms and stuff and, like, you know, assault weapons. Yeah. They're totally dominating our, like, you know, fat 45-year-old guys who've had eight cans of carling. Well, we got, football. we got complacent, didn't we? That was the point. We got we, yeah. we were the best in the world for years. The Dutch and the Germans challenged us for a while. And then we came yeah. out on top there. And then the Russians have come along, like you say. 
They are yeah. they are next level hardcore hooligans. They're boys yeah. and people. Mu- Those fuckers. It's much more entertaining to watch than the actual football. <laughs> well, do you remember years ago there was a, a England uh, Holland match in Rotterdam, and then there was loads of trouble afterwards. Yep. And it was a bad decision, you know, the, the game. Uh, and I was, in, I was working in Holland and we went to this little Dutch bar and there was a table of four of us uh, English people and everyone else was, uh, was Dutch, obviously. And they were showing up on the big screen. And, uh, and everyone was all like, oh, you, oh, no, you're English. Oh, isn't this fun? And then, uh, and then the game got more and more tense and more and more horrible. And then afterwards, it spilled out into the streets and the news was on. And really, by the end of the night, it wasn't as much like the Bicker of Dibley as it had been at the beginning. <laughs> it's quite a dark memory for me. <laughs> Thanks for sharing, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been, to watch, I've been to England away games. We went to Luxembourg back in the 80s. And uh, this hooligan crew smashed up the entire city of Luxembourg. I mean, it was really full on what was going on. Mm. Um, but like I say, that, the songs and the nationalism, if you like, um, I, I, think, I think it's sort of that feeling has come back a bit now in the last mm-hmm. four years. And I, mm. and I don't like that side of things. You know, I'm not talking about Brexit, although Brexit was obviously part of it. I'm just saying it feels like that is in the ascendant again. You know, yeah. and it doesn't. I think it's sort of suppressed by the you know the the liberal like chatting classes. Whereas in Scotland, the thing that scares me in Scotland, there's no suppression, there's no awareness of the dangers of nationalism. And Scottish people are really nationalistic. They're all behind you know Nicola Sturgeon and uh, and you know against the English. And I think it's a really dangerous xenophobic. And my family's English and they live in Glasgow. And uh, you know, it's, I think I think Scottish nationalism over the next few years could turn out turn into a really dangerous thing because there isn't that level of introspection around it. Mm. This isn't very funny, is it? But do you think <laughs> maybe also <laughs> let's, get, let's get our concerns out here, guys? It's all maybe good, yeah. it's just exactly it's pure concern. But I think Scottish nationalism, at least Scotland, is good at nationalism because it's part of the culture. I think that English nationalism is rubbish because we're rubbish at it. You know, it's like, why can't why can't we be nationalists? I think it's our turn to be nationalists, and then everyone's really rubbish at it because they don't know how to do it. People who who listen to classic of them then suddenly go and say, "This is my national trust property." They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. They start smashing up, I don't know, ticket machines in car parks. It doesn't quite work. Yes, I was concerned in Scotland. Is actually they are national socialists, aren't they? I don't know if anyone yeah. remembers yeah. the last um, <laughs> significant group. No, of national socialists, no, don't but, uh... remember that. No, no idea what they got up to. So we're going to talk about the demise of comedy then. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. it's just. By the way, Leo, and I, I want to say this on air: the fact that I thought that thing you said about the stand was very funny, right? It was a joke, and it was funny. And I saw yeah. the Facebook bollocks that went on afterwards. Do you know what Leo said? No, I haven't read it. No, sorry. I well, you should tell us what you said. I think I said. Um, I said I was like, well, well, well. And I was like, oh, another comedy club that doesn't book me has, you know, has gone broke. Well, well, well. Let that be a lesson to the other ones. So <laughs> funny, right? It's purely funny. But people funny. got upset, didn't they? They oh, got, they got upset. So upset. I've been blacklisted by loads of promoters now. <laughs> Have you? Oh wow. Yeah. Are you, are you currently killing the popularity of this podcast just by being here? <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not sure I want to be associated all of a sudden. I didn't realise it got that serious. I'm, I'm fully expecting to be cut from this podcast halfway through. <laughs> Who's going to be cut from this podcast? What are you talking about? 
<laughs> That's right. That's very Hands good. Hands culture. I'm good at it. You've gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it because the joke was on me. The joke was on me. It's like me pretending to be like this hubristic comedian who thinks that this club's gone bust because they haven't booked me. You know what I mean? Obviously gone bust because of coronavirus. Everybody knows that. <laughs> um, the fact that they don't book me is just, a, you know, it's maybe only 40% of the reason. So, um, you know, it's, it's clearly a joke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a shame though, isn't it? I mean, obviously it's a shame about the club, but it's also a shame about the way people react to this stuff as well because you know what we're comedians yeah isn't yeah, this not, the point i'm not really yeah. surprised yeah. we're losing our sense of humor over this though because we are do appear to be about to lose our industry do we not there was a massive fight on one of the facebook groups about um comedy did you see the one where somebody was saying um when we come back and do these outdoor gigs we've got to make sure that we're booking like great acts and paying everybody and charging for tickets and then somebody who i've never heard of who is like oh actually i'm gonna say this and get trolled massively but somebody who i think is like a new comedian was like how dare you say that you're not going to book open mic acts for these these like gigs to resurrect comedy how dare you say that you're not going to book people who've only done three gigs in their life and charge people for tickets and there was a huge fight it was quite um absorbing and I've lost about <laughs> I lost about half an hour to it, so I just wanted to. Know. <laughs> but it is—it's a solo industry, isn't it? And then these moments were sort of required to team up and act as one, and it's always tricky, isn't it? The sort of the various. Uh, yeah, I think the unionisation. There's this push towards sort of unionisation and arts council recognition. I think it's going to be the death of comedy. Comedy is a self-sustaining thing. Like if, if it's dependent on arts council funding, you're going to have to fill in forms and like tick all these boxes for diversity and whatever. And it's not going to be focused on the funny anymore. And like, well, you know, clubs like Comedy Store, Top Secret, there's really diverse lineups anyway. You know what I mean? It's not because not they're ticking boxes, not because they're trying to get Arts Council funding. Yeah, but this is, just, this is just a specific thing to get comedy clubs. The, the clubs that, that are struggling a bit more, perhaps, are the ones who have to pay rent on a, on a permanent premises. And yeah. Simon is nodding at this. <laughs> and I think, you know, the little rooms above pubs that will close down for a year and then open again, they'll just open again. But it's the purpose-built clubs that need mm. to be looked after. And that's perhaps where Arts Council funding can come in handy, just for this specific yeah. thing. Because comedy, as much as you say it is self-sustaining, it isn't at the moment. I mean, yeah. I mean, we're I going think, into like, the winter. We're not working for the next six months unless something fucking happens. Sorry to be bleak, but that's the truth of it, right? Mm. We can get some patio heaters and do them all outside, <laughs> isn't it? I've got, I've got, I'm like psychotically optimistic about this, and I think. Are you? Fine. Yeah. Are that's you? Be the, yeah. the new Facebook post must have own PA system and patio <laughs> heaters. <in. laughs> yeah. and, and optimism that is so strong that it can see that it can face down the bleakness of the potential future. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I also think, like you say, whether whether you're into it or not, it's just socio-culturally grouping together is really hard. You know, that, that, like the idea of, you know, I'm, I'm into it, you know, I'm, in life, I'm, I'm the socialist, I want it to all be all right. But when people start asking me to join any group of comedians that might be kind of formalized, I always feel like um, uh, John Cusack in Gross Point Blank. I'm like, I'm the lone gunman. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, look at the way yeah. I dress. What's yeah. the last time you think I'm after? 
And it gets so set up and you're like, oh, I, I'm not sure I want to sign up to this because what if everyone's a pedophile? And so <laughs> then you kind of like shy away from it. <laughs> that was my first right thought. Next was... to Leo curses. And it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my first thought as well. But the, uh, I suppose the thing is, it's just, it's just the venues for the moment, isn't it? And we're just trying to get looked after. I don't... I remember we've talked about having a comics union. I remember having a, a meeting at the comedy store in the 90s with uh, Ivor Dempbeena and a couple of others talking about unionisation of comedy just to sort of look after each other's interests a little bit. But it never happened and it probably never will at this point. I, I don't think. There are a couple of little yeah. versions of it, aren't there? That are some doing better than others, but yeah. You know what? It's just, we knew when you see what happened to one of our mates who had a stroke and all the money that was raised for him. And I'm doing a benefit gig next Saturday night uh, for him with a load of other people. And um, so I think there is a lot of togetherness, but, but getting money, getting money to help out one specific comedy club in, in one specific city. Um, I think that's more mm. problematic. Yeah. I that think it's, I think it's more likely that, that, somebody hopefully you get a rich benef benefactor who, who loved being there or playing there who bails it out the that's thing what is, i'm counting on for my own financial security is that just some stranger somewhere in the world has seen a gig and happens a to have benefactor. a couple of mail honestly every time i put up youtube videos because like because i'm a sort of right-wing comedian i get all these people like you know like i, I see like left-wing comedians put stuff up somebody buys them a coffee for three pounds i'm like ha, three pounds somebody donated one person donated 150 pounds last time i put a video up on youtube because they're like this is a coffee to me because i'm right-wing Oh, <laughs> we missed out. I'm Shit. concerned that this rumor might spread, and we are. This is going to be a real thing. I'm not affiliated with you. <laughs> um, Do you have to be really right wing, or can you just say right wing things for a bit? Is that, yeah. I don't, I'm, I'm still working out what's the best level of right wing to. Get them <laughs> but a bit like the world. Um, <laughs> I, I think yeah. the most serious thing in comedy at the moment, and the thing I'm sure we are all equally as a loving community worried about, is that when gigs are inside, um, you're not supposed to talk loud or be spitty or smile <laughs> or open your mouth too wide or sing or, or sing loudly or, I don't know if I read this right, use musical instruments and pedals or indeed do word, wordplay. <laughs> I think we're all, all worried. That was a letter that we wrote to you, Rob. That must be. <laughs> yeah, the spitty thing is going to be hard for me as well, being Welsh, because like, I've got a whole 10 minutes that need a little perspex screen. So. <laughs> so, yeah, we're super, um, I did a bunch of indoor gigs in Dubai, so they're in like big halls, and like it was like doing corporates, everybody's at big round tables, but mm. they're, they're so much fun. They were just really fun gigs to do. Yeah. So I, th I think, you know, if the, if the government lets us, we, the only problem is, like, obviously purpose-built comedy clubs aren't built with that, no. you know, that sort of space. But I'm doing, I'm doing top secret tonight, so I'm going to see how they've, like, you know, spaced it all out. Looking at the videos that Nico's been putting up, there's not that much space. Well, it's um, most of the people who go there, yeah, shush, yeah, most of the people who go there are 20, 21, and frankly, like, couldn't give a shit. They don't really? social distance. They don't, you know, people under 25 don't do it. So, you know, yeah. that my makes things a lot more straightforward. My housemate's um, younger than me and she's just not doing COVID. She's like, no, nah. even in March, April, she was like, not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't say those words, but she, she turned her house into an illegal speakeasy. So like, there's a lot of people, I think, yeah, who just... 
Wow. Yeah. Get, getting on well, with yeah, it. Quite, quite right. It's not even like young people don't even get it. You know what I mean? It's a risk. It's a risk for me and uh, and Ian and uh, Rob. But like you know, like young young people don't young people don't get it. So I don't know why we're not just like isolating. They do get me, it. Ian and Rob. <laughs> get it. They just get it much less, right? Or much in a you know, it's mild. Yeah, they don't, they, don't, they don't even notice. No. They don't even notice they've got it. And like also the deaths. So nobody's dying from it at the moment. But my dad, so he's got cancer. He hasn't had his chemo because they're saying, oh, if you get chemo, it'll, it'll lower your immune system or whatever. Oh, wow. uh, so now he's going to die from cancer instead of like getting the chance of like living and then dying from coronavirus. And uh, oh, There must be a lot of that, I guess, is there? Yeah, loads. There's loads yeah, of people loads. Who, are, who are not getting operations and not getting treatment on loads of other medical issues yeah. because of COVID. But it must be, then, if, you're, if you feel this way, Leo, you know, this sort of whatever right-wing thing about we shouldn't have the lockdown in the same day way that maybe the left think, it must be even more galling for you <laughs> than oh. the fact that, that this is going on. Oh yeah, it's ridiculous. And also, it's, it's, people are getting angry. You can see all this stuff. You know, the, like, little things are exploding into anger because everybody's really frustrated and pissed off because they're like crammed into their houses instead of like going out. And there's no social contact. Social contact is so like healthy and normal and necessary for for you know for mental health and and just functioning mm-hmm. society. I think it's really unhealthy. What, what you want to get back? You want to get back to just going out and touching strangers? Oh, just <laughs> smelling their hair on the bus, all that stuff. It's hard to get through a mask. I'm really, (laughs) yeah, it makes such a noise. It's very kind of, you start to feel like Hannibal Lecter and it's got that thing on with the little, you know. But um, uh, I've been, I'm a a big social distancer. In fact, I'm, you know, I combine obsessive social distancing with running, which means I'm repeatedly running into the road. And no matter what I do, I am a pariah because most runners are rubbish. So I can go anywhere and be despised by old people from 30 feet. Whilst trying to social distance on a run, is it a COVID-related death? Does that go on the... Uh... Yeah, I don't know. I was running when I was trying yes. to see some bluebells in Durham. And, uh, uh, <laughs> and my eyesight isn't that great. Um, and that was, that was definitely... Yeah, but um, I did run into a cyclist. I was trying to avoid loads of people. I'd run further and further into the road. And then I was trying to sort of peel back to the pavement. And a cyclist, a, a young woman, overtook me on the inside left. And I was like, trying, I was literally trying to get out of her way because I knew she was coming. And she was trying to overtake me. It was a hot day. And uh, we ended up just momentarily, we just, her, my arm went into the curve of her arm. And I went, oh, oh sorry. And she went, oh, and she cycled on. But honestly, that arm's worth of human contact. Oh, I've been thinking about it ever since. <laughs> That sound tells us why we like it so much, right? Yeah. I don't use the self-checkouts anymore. I just go to the one where there's a human. And I do the, like, long taking the change, like... (laughs) It's great that that's a close-up of your hands. Yeah, yeah. It was a good podcast, sorry. (laughs) That's fine. That'll have to be the cover photo. Your face won't be in it. Sorry, Jenny. It's a strange (laughs) cover. We're all at the chick. We're all at the human check. It's like that scene in Midnight Express when his girlfriend comes into the jail. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think about that scene now. (laughs) That film, Midnight Express, is the film that my my father-in-law, when he first got a video recorder, and I say video recorder because, of course, being an early adopter, it was a Betamax, right? Mm -hmm. About 1981 or whatever it was. 
So my, my wife uh, would have been, you know, probably under 10. And uh, he got a VHS. Come on, everyone, let's all watch a film. Uh, not a VHS, a Betamax. Let's all watch a film on this brand new video system. And the film they watched was Midnight Express. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, nice. she still doesn't really like films and gets upset, you know, uh, when I suggest we go to Turkey. So I was thinking it was quite a traumatic experience for her. Is it true, by the way, um, um, I, I actually don't know this, but I heard that the pornography industry did for the Betamax uh, videos because, Jenny, do you even know about this stuff? I'm only asking. I don't even know what Midnight Express is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a film, but did Vita, uh, in, in, the, um, in the 80s, there were two sorts of videos, right? Uh, VHS and Betamax. Did yeah. Betamax look like a giant um, compact disc? No, that's Laserdisc. Okay. Yeah, no, but I don't it, know what Betamax is. But they were competing videos, way of recording TV shows. And, uh, and then they said that the porn industry did for Betamax because all the porn films were on VHS. So everyone <laughs> bought VHS recorders. I don't even know if that's true. But that's well, it's probably part of it because that's the industry, isn't it? And, it was, and cinema was on the downloads. It's great topical stuff. And VHS <laughs> was... Uh, VHS is cheaper. Betamax, is a, it's, more, it's like a metaphor for everything because Betamax is kind of provably better but yeah. VHS is cheaper and easier. So also they used to, VHS videos used to cost a hundred pounds because the shop would buy them. But then people started buying them to watch themselves. And, uh, and they were like, oh, right. So then they had to be cheap. And uh, right. that was, yeah, that was off the back of Top Gun. So that's uh, 86. What is Blu-ray? <laughs> and that's the name of the podcast <laughs> that lasted a while didn't it it's a particular way of watching a film you know it's a disc in it some sort of blu-ray disc there's it something about compact disc, boys yeah. putting films on that they think that we want better and better quality and nobody cares yeah. you know if you go online now and say Oh, particularly if it's something kind of franchisey. Say, so I just watched The Empire Strikes Back. There'll be a guy who'll come on and say, did you watch the uh, remastered 2000? I don't care. I, was, did, I wasn't watching it for the pixel quality, for goodness sake. But yeah. nevertheless, I do appear to be talking about it. Yeah, it was, a, it was <laughs> sort of like HD this... before HD, wasn't it? Yeah, that was yeah. Uh, okay. Because yeah. yeah, like with nice. 3D has never happened, has it? But with that, it's just, oh, I just get to see a little bit further around a person's head than before. Yeah. Big to, deal. I went to a few 3D films. I saw Avatar in 3D and Gravity. Oh, yeah, that was great. It was pretty cool. Yeah. But I don't know. I wouldn't do it at home. Who could be bothered? Uh, <laughs> you all need, need those glasses. Yeah. So you like need somebody's going to be sitting there with no glasses. Yeah. <laughs> also, I just think it makes you... I, I, I just think it's never going to work because it reminds you that you're watching the film. It's a bit like, you know, doing Ooh. a comedy at uh, an arts festival. You get a lot less laughs because I'm sort of thinking, I wonder what I think of this. This is very Brechtian alienation theory. That's taking me back really? to Tarnock, all this discussion. Yeah, yeah. 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 Whether well, you're you watching should... the show or thinking about watching the show. I just do the gigs. I just do the gigs yeah. at Arts Festival just so I can get a ticket for the Arts Festival, really. <laughs> and the gig is just the way that I get in, like Glastonbury or wherever it is. I know it's yeah, not yeah. going to be the the most life changing experience in the world. Talking to a load of stone people in a tent yeah. at three <laughs> o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, but I get to watch Lizzo do That's her why thing. This year, this year's Glastonbury was genuinely the most I've ever enjoyed Glastonbury. 
<laughs> because it was that kind of BBC idea of how wonderful Glastonbury can be. Uh, I mean, there wasn't any real Glastonbury with the sunburn and the toilets and losing your friends and missing the band that, that people actually have to experience. There was only the imaginary version of it where all the gigs are by David Bowie and Beyonce and they're all fantastic and you get to go to your own fridge. Can I ask, yeah. did everyone watch the David Bowie concert? The, I watched it. The, did you watch it, Leo? No. No, you who's, didn't watch who's it. Who's David Bowie? <laughs> <laughs> watch your Blu-ray. <laughs> I was just intrigued. You didn't watch it, Jenny, right? No, I'm really young. <laughs> Joking. I wish yes. I had seen it. I didn't see, see it. But I just, it, I, I don't know what people felt. I was going to say it felt like a unifying moment during the lockdown, but not in this room <laughs> right now. Did you watch it, Simon? Yes, I did, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people on my Twitter timeline. I think, obviously, you've, your, your little tribe, but mm, everyone was yeah. watching it and it felt like a little bit of contact during this long yeah. period when we weren't together. Yeah. It's all obviously not for Jenny, who's never heard of David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> but she can't she can't be that young with roots like that. Don't leave early. Yeah, no, I just felt that I liked that feeling. That was yeah. a good moment for me. Yeah. It, I yeah. mean there wasn't there weren't many. During the and again, it was more communal. There was a more sort of special echo chamberish maybe moment of communing with the, your tribe and your brothers and sisters than there would have been if you were there at the back going, well, I can't hear it and I don't know where so-and-so is and my phone's just run out. <laughs> there is that. Plus, he was alive, which made for a much better set. I am young. Sorry, Leo. I am young. I got ID'd the other day, so... Oh, I was wearing That's a mask beautiful. at the time, so it might not like be. It's just. Wow. Were you trying to buy something you had to be over thirty-six for? How <laughs> 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 do you know my exact age? <laughs> I got ID the last time I went to a gig. This is like basically like time travel, isn't it? Now I went to a gig in Camden. You know. Um, uh, <laughs> I won't tell you who I went to see because it wasn't in any way cool and the performer was very old. But uh, just going to for a drink beforehand and the guy ID'd me on the way in. And the thing is, he was just IDing everyone. But it gave me such joy. Such a it was, I was, I was yeah. 47 and he ID'd me. <laughs> and I've got, obviously, I've got grey hair. My grey hair is at the, getting to the point where it's towards, I remember Charlie Brooker was uh, reviewing Philip Schofield presenting The Cube. And he said his hair's like nuclear ice. And, uh, and, and it, I absolutely loved it. It made me laugh. And every day, every time I look in the mirror, that gets less funny for me. Um, but, but yeah, ID'd at 47. It's given me another two years. Yeah, yeah. Because they quite often ID people in the club just to get you to say a few sentences and see if you can find your wallet to see if you're absolutely spannered. It's kind of a <laughs> That was it. Classic. So it's because I walked yeah. up to him like that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. And then what he has Classic to listen to. English football fan. <laughs> and he has to listen to 35,000 people go, oh my God, I've been ID. <laughs> every time, Everyone every has time. the best night of their life because they're just like, I look young. Yeah. So every time. I was easily the oldest person in Camden on my own by a long yeah. way that night. Yeah. I find that that happens to me a lot walking through Camden, but yeah, I got ID. Every time you go to Waitrose, if you buy booze, someone has to come over and 
on the self-service, someone has to come over and push a few buttons. Yeah. <laughs> and I always have to resist going, I am over 18. Right? I did it a couple of times. And they sort of went, yeah, yeah, we've only heard that 14 times a day. And uh, <laughs> so I, but I, it, the thought always occurs to me, but I go, shut up, just don't do it. I, it's not always a gig. So, um, yeah. I used to take ID to the cinema when I was young because no one ever believed I was young enough to have a child ticket. That was the last time I was ID'd was to prove I was under 14. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, uh, proof, of, uh, you know, in America, they just, it's like, you know, that thing about getting ID'd just on principle. That's what they do in America, which is they just have rules, don't they? And uh, I was in working in America and I was much younger than I am now, but I was easily old enough to drink, as was everyone else I was with. And we went to a restaurant and we ordered drinks and they said, oh, can we get ID? And uh, like me and all my mates, we were sort of all mid to late 20s or 30 or whatever. And I was like, well, don't know what to do. And I rummaged through my wallet and I had my old proof of age card when the UK tried to introduce this, but no one mm -hmm. did it because who cares? But I had one, which I kept because the photo was so ridiculous. <laughs> that was the only reason it was in my wallet. And uh, as a result, I was the only person who could drink that night in San Diego and also <laughs> got some fun looking at this picture of me. I mean, it was a classic, you know, we've all had a lot of ID cards for it to be that bad that you keep it for five to 10 years. Mm. It was a good one. Describe, yeah. describe the picture. Um, it was, it was, it wasn't, I imagine if my hair like it is now was another four inches out from the head <laughs> and uh, I am quite squinty as you can see. So you see how I always look like I'm looking off to the side and then I got a little bit too close in the booth. So it was kind of fish eye. <laughs> basically imagine a kind of skinny Einstein like really no it wasn't skinny but there was something kind of gaunt and unhealthy looking about my face and then like just that moment I've been punched in the back of the head <laughs> <laughs> splendid a description yeah well I had the we same have... problem as you Simon when I was when I was a kid I was like you know six foot two or something uh, mm. and uh, I remember the school when I was about 10 we went to this petting zoo and they had Shetland ponies, so we all got in the Shetland ponies, and my feet, my feet stayed on the ground. There's a photo of me somewhere, like uh, just looking really depressed, like pony, and I'm, I'm carrying the pony. Please find that photo. Please, please find that photo. Shetland pony is nature's ID. That would do it, wouldn't it? That would do it. So there you have it, a wonderful piece of silliness to take us through to our next section. This, however, is where I must make a sad announcement. The Edge show itself will not be returning to the Comedy Store if and when we manage to reopen. All of comedy is being forced to downsize and a Tuesday night simply won't be viable. And with the show will go this podcast, at least in this form. So it seemed only fitting that we brought in the Edge founder, Mr John Connor himself, to give him the last word on all this. I started by asking him, perhaps unfairly, how he'd reacted to the news of the show's demise. A lot of comedy, stand-up comedy, is gone now. And um, it was not a shock. And, but actually saying goodbye to everybody was incredibly emotional. Yeah. And I'm sitting in front of a whole page of really quite gushing responses from comedians in the team yeah we're up to i don't know yeah 15 16 people have come back and just said it's been a privilege to be part of it and all of that you know this obviously meant a lot to a lot of the comics as well well it was a show that wasn't didn't exist anywhere else in the world and um mm. 
you know, there are television shows that run, have run far longer. And, um, but the idea of stand-ups working together as a team, mucking about together and not being on their own. Mm. I mean, solitary comics are on their own all the time. I mean, they may gather in Edinburgh, and, but they're in and out of clubs. In the 80s, before you joined this mayhem, Yes. <laughs> the comedy store had a bar in the uh, the second store had a bar in it that was separated from the actual club and which all the comics on the Saturday night used to gather in and it was like Edinburgh every 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 Saturday night. This is the Leicester Square back, comedy store, yeah. That's, yeah, and you had a backstage pass. And what you do is you go in there and you'd occasionally come out and watch a comic perform if you thought it was going to be interesting. Yeah. But basically, everybody was ignored. And you'd have... It was, it, it was like, it was like a, night, a nightclub for comic. It doesn't exist anymore anywhere, does it? There isn't. isn't no, there? it doesn't. No. So um, you had the idea of starting The Edge, right? It was... It, it was... Well, it was weird. It was my idea to start a topical comedy show using stand-ups doing topical comedy yeah. and if my idea was to do a television show like you know, the chance of me as a as a as a journalist getting a stand-up show going on television was highly unlikely hmm. um but it was my wife said well why don't Cause she she worked in tv and she knew the hell of um getting something into production and she was totally right you know and she said, well, why don't you try a live show? Obviously, I was the, uh, like, I, you know, was comedy ed- I created the comedy section at City Limits magazine, which doesn't exist anymore, at Lester's magazine. Mm-hmm. And uh, first, at the first comedy section anywhere in the country. And um, That's extraordinary as well, yeah. Starting the genre of being a comedy critic. That's quite well, there were other people who'd written, like Carol Sarley, who recently died, who'd written comedy reviews in the, in the mainstream papers, which he worked mm. for, but nobody had done it as a regular thing. And uh, I started it, I think, in 1983, and it was a massive fight to get it done at City Limits, where I worked as a theatre critic uh, as a freelance. Nobody there accepted comedy. That was a fight all the way through. Like today, when the Arts Council given all this money, there's a massive fight to, to get comedy believed as a fucking art form. Yeah, that's a sad uh, thing. I realise it's still the same now, Christ. Yeah. It's all the same now. Um, uh, and I have to say this, but Bruce Dessau, who's now a, a, a comedy critic of Asian Sand and did a nice review of this show, he used to be the music editor at City Limits in the mid-'80s when I was a comedy critic there. And he used to, fair enough, laugh at me for being a comedy critic. Because wow. he thought it was ridiculous. I probably should there you go. in, should I? I don't know, yeah. <laughs> well, fucking, fucking do, because it is the edge and it is the show, and I never gave a fuck. Um, yeah, fair enough, yeah. So I approached Kim Kinney, who was sort of running the store as the artistic director at the time, mm. and he wasn't keen on it. So I went to Don, who I obviously knew, and Don thought it was a good idea. Wow. The the original idea was for me to get I, I always I always loved the topical comedy the early store in the you know, this is nineteen eighty one yeah um, and I remember because I was at university of nineteen eighty 
and 81, I think, I turned up at the store, and I turned up at the store doing, um, doing an open spot, and I did all right. I did something that I'd done as a, a university in, 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 um, in review, and it went, it was a wacky thing, and it went okay. So I came back next week, and anyway, that one died because I wrote from scratch, and it was terrible. But uh, what I do remember was all the comics at that time used to watch each other. Yeah. And they'd watch it, and the, and the comics they, they liked, they'd watch and be supportive. And they'd heckle, but they'd heckle positively. So my thought was always, well, there was, they did topical comedy in those days, and they used to support each other. And the, and the lines that they'd come out with were far better than the audience. So what I wanted was a show that recreated that. So I started with five performers with a kind of rough plan, but nothing concrete, and just kind of put it together with the performers in, in the way I knew that theatre worked, which was that you can, you can work with performers and work something out together. Yeah. Um, so I did it in that way. I never said, we're going to do it. Well, I did in the end, but, you know, I chose what the best bits were and I honed it. But, you know, a lot of the influence came from the performers themselves. I always thought that you, I mean, I came up with ideas and I pushed them for years and then suddenly a performer would come up with them and other performers would say, oh, yeah, let's try that. And I'd go, <laughs> I've been saying this for five fucking years. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that uh, firsthand, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, but, but it's that kind of, pushing stuff all the time. And, you know, performers would come up with stuff, and, uh, you know, and I would, uh, you know, the last thing that we had, the last thing we had in the show, which was uh, Burning Issues, mm. came really from the performers. I honed that, made it work in a way, but they, by that time, they all trusted me, and I said, well, we'll do it this way, mm. and we were fine with it. We did it the first time, and it worked really well, and we kept it in ever since. And I, in many ways, I think it became the best thing in the show. And it, weirdly, it came out of something that had been lifted by the store in Manchester, which was Men at Work. Okay. And Men at Work had done, had done something like that. So it, yeah. was a, it was a reverberation of something that had been uh, taken yeah, from to... the show. Yes, yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. other shows on television have uh, spun out of the edge, but we won't mention that because it's a uh, lightless yes and uh yeah you could point to many tv shows that came from shows that happened live first and had no credit for it including other shows at the comedy store on other days indeed you can yeah. we're the similar producer i think yes right. so um this kind of i love the your stories of the dis dysfunctional family to the cutting edge so what i've seen in the later years is you leading and it kind of taking control my understanding of the earlier years is the family was much more dysfunctional it was a fight. I don't know why I, you know, for the first five years, it was hell. Hmm. And I didn't know why I dragged myself in. I think it was just sheer bloody persistence. I thought the idea was good, you know, and I wanted to be a comedy producer. Um, and the BBC, I got through to the final stage of the BBC radio and they said, I'm a maverick. I was too much of a maverick, which is fair enough. By one point, I'd become a casting director and started working in quite high-fluting television circles. Uh, and so I, I wasn't so bad about keeping it going because it was like a, 
Yeah. It was a part-time thing, and um, but it was awful for the beginning. Right. Uh, and, and why not? I, it was like becoming, I, I was, I suppose I was 32 when I started and a critic. So why should they trust me? And, yeah. and stand-ups, stand-ups don't trust anybody. But what they do need is actually an awful lot of time is direction. And, and that, that's what a good agent will do. Mm. Um, but what they do need is somebody to stand outside and, and actually help them with material. They hate it, <laughs> but but yeah. it's actually true. You, I mean, many comics came into the show and there was something about them I loved. And, mm. you know, they weren't store acts. By the time they became store acts and became regular acts that the store would use, they were quite quite loved at the store, but they weren't before. I mean, a lot of the messages you've had since since you spoke to the team last night are that it was some of the best times they've had on stage. Oh yes, that's that's certainly. I mean, I just loved it. It it it, it became like the best times of variety. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've had some tricky moments over the years, have you? Between uh, well, in the yeah. early days, it was awful. They all hated each other. Yeah, because they were all competing. In the early days, they were all competing with each other to always win everything. There was no sense of teamwork, mm. and it took years and years and years before that was. I mean, in the last five to ten years there has been kind of joy on the stage with everybody getting on with each other. And yeah. the dressing room is a laugh. And when they go out on stage, they have a laugh. Yeah, uh, and in fact, that's all sort of why we started the podcast, which uh, I was in the very first three before we, the world was destroyed. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Although I have to say it's much easier to edit a podcast with four people than with what were we doing? Seven, eight of us in the podcast? <laughs> Seven, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a challenge for the store to have a place for that kind of spontaneity and that kind of, there needs to well, be some sort of replacement for that, I'm sure. Uh, well, maybe a Thursday night. Is this you pitching for... (laughs) Oh, I wanted to ask you about your huge list of celebrities that you've had in the show over the years. It's quite quite a who's who, isn't it? Yeah, a lot of people... Well, I mean, one of the good things about doing the show was that back and forth that you have naturally. Yeah. So if you've done the show, you go on the television, you're used to that. I mean, I watch um, uh, QI... Yeah. And I often go, well, three or four of the uh, of the people on there have mm. done the egg. I mean, it's a cheat because Alan Davis only did one show. But we'll take it. I've written him down. Ed uh, 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 <laughs> did one show. The reason he only did one show was because, although he was incredibly funny, he didn't do any topical material and he didn't work with other people very well. Mm. How, how important to the edge is that topical thing because we often debated this in the later years of whether the what the audience enjoyed was the interaction and the messing about and that actually the topicality was more for us than for the audience well i think it it was a dualism is that the the topicality was you know if an audience hears something you know a topicality means you have to do something they or all the audience know about yeah. Doing something that you're just interested in makes no difference. Uh, so people who were news heavy had, 
you couldn't always connect with an audience that were populist. A very and, regular you know, dressing room conversation was, will the audience have read this story? I mean, yeah, yeah, well, I used, in the early days before the, the internet came along, and I used to re- read The Sun every day. Because mm. I, I, I hated the sun, but I had to be, I had to be aware of what populist culture was. I was so glad when I gave the sun up. Yes, but but if you do something that's in the moment, the audience will just how they will react to it, and they actually, you know, if it was a show of us comics mucking about, yeah, I think that would work. To be perfectly honest, mm. but yeah, there was something about that we're doing both that I think was taking the show somewhere else. It also means that there was a generation of material. If you're just mucking about all the time, you don't generate material. You stay with the same thing. This was, you know, people who didn't generate material didn't stay in the show. And so what you got was people who wanted to write. It meant that the comics did the show turned over material and they often came back and said to me, look, you know, I get wherever I go, they're amazed that I've got all these different sets and they're not used to it. They're used to people who've got the same 20 minutes for years. In the old musical, people used to have the same set all the time. They'd start the song, finish on the song and do the same material. In fact, this is an old Morecambe and White real story from Variety Days. There was a guy who used to finish and he used to take a letter out and he'd sing a song from his mother. Mm-hmm. And one day, Morecambe and Wise took the letter out and put in a blank piece of paper, and the fucker died. Wow. And he'd been doing it for 30 years. He didn't know it. Christ. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's in their autobiography. It's very, it was a very funny, but it just, yeah. uh, but I think, Right, uh, performers who don't generate material become stayed. And that's one of the reasons why I started this show. Because I used to go to Edinburgh and you see one man, one woman shows. And um, they, although they were freshly written, they were dire to watch, most of them. Yeah. Because they were just plodding, they weren't theatrical. And it was the idea of getting comics to write and turn over material on a weekly basis. And I also hated Weekending, I did, I hate it, which is a show that's disappeared on radio, which is a topical show. I've always been too young for your references, John. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, but it was a topical, never had any meat. The whole point was to do edgy, satirical stuff, which yeah. uh, may have come back to tell you to an extent with Frankie Boyle, but hasn't really been around for a long time. In fact, has come back to tell everything with Frankie Boyle. Yeah. But... Um, Without him, there hasn't been anybody, I think, on television that's done anything, really. It's, it was private eye and us for a long time. I mean, when Diana died, we were the only people doing jokes about it. Yeah, that's interesting. You have, yeah, there's somebody wrote a story oh. about the highlight that you wrote was uh, Americans walking out from the show after 9-11. Was that no, that was some, one of the other comics. That was, um, yeah, uh, uh, I don't actually remember. I remember the joke. It was, he did a, he came up and it was, because we'd spent the whole day discussing with the week, because 9-11 happened on a Tuesday. Mm. Sean Mayo was in the show, didn't do the show that night because his brother is in one of the buildings. Yeah. So he obviously, and I think I brought Ian Stoney and, uh, uh, and Stoney followed, uh, followed Boothby 
And I can't remember what Stone did, but he just said something that the whole audience, something topical about the incident, that yeah. the whole audience, it was like a, a wave of relief came from them because they yeah. were stunned by this yeah. all. And we, I'd spent the day talking to everybody, all the comics, on whether we should do a show. Mm. And in the end, we decided to do it. And, you know, it was quite an emotion. It was amazing to actually do But Booty came on with a, a, a naff joke about twins separating. Right. Uh, yeah. Didn't go well. <laughs> it was quite funny. I think, I think human beings enjoy references and, and dealing with them. I mean, the pent-up emotions and everything that w w people have gone through with COVID and lockdowns and all the ridiculousness of it all and how Trump has fucked it up and Brazil has fucked it up and, to mm. be, and Br Boris, I think, is now in fourth place because Mexico has moved. is a third, which my wife told me the other day. I'm not sure. They came up with the news like they used to. I think all of that is important to talk to people about, and it becomes uh, it becomes cathartic. I don't think television deals with it because it won't deal with them now too much, and it also holds back on things because it can't be. I mean, Private Eye does, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Um, and we did, and I don't think many other places can or did do. Um, so in that sense, and, and comics doing their stand up and going around clubs, yes, they talk about that, and it, and I think that's why stand up really. I was going to bring up the Madeleine McCann moment, which okay. was, which was very because the audience asked for Madeleine McCann's a joke over the interval, and Ian Stone got it, and there were people saying, "You can't do that. They're, we're friends with them." And, and we had a big of the audience, yeah. Refused. Yeah, and we had a, and we had a discussion, and, and me be coming from a journalist background, immediately said, "Well, look, we'll give them their money back, but mm. this is what audiences have come for. If they want that, we'll give it to them." And mm. it, and they all, they actually stayed, and Ian went on. Ian again went on stage and did something that really worked, and yeah. you know was written in that room in that time, and also. Jokes were written in, you know, comics would do their own stuff, but many comics, the best ones at dealing with it, would actually take gags from within the room and and you and they go out there with some of their own stuff for other things and things. One thing would lead to another, and like four or five people would come up with an idea. Yeah, and I really enjoyed that. That that uh, you know, the spitballing part of it. Yeah, the only live show with a writer's room, isn't it? I think. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's right. And in, 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 in some way, and I would spitball with all of them, and some people liked it, some people didn't. But sometimes you would just roll. And yeah. I thought it was very good. It you would just get one line on top of another, and suddenly you a bloody you get a routine together. Yeah, it's an odd question. I was good at. I wrote down, will you miss the show? But obviously we, we haven't done the show since since March and you actually isolated, because of your health problems, you isolated earlier than everybody In February, else. yeah. So you well, I was, quite, I was quite right as well. You were absolutely right. That's probably the first time I would say. <laughs> but what, what do you do now? What are you going to do instead? What's 
Well, I, yeah, it's, it's a horrible question. It's nothing to do as a horrible question, but I'm, yeah. uh, you know, I, I've got pretty advanced MS. Hmm. And I kind of wrote to Steve just now, the idea is I kind of, I, I, did my, I held on. And then when COVID came along and shut down, my body, my MS just accelerated. And I, I wrote, as a science nerd, I know that's wrong, but as, as a romantic, I think that must be true. Mm. Um, so my day-to-day living is completely different. I mean, I still knock out, I work as a, I, write, I work for an American MS website. Yeah. Uh, I've wrote, written a weekly column there for over three years. Uh, uh, as well. yeah. yeah, yeah, I've written. I don't know. I've written a small. I've I've written a novel nearly, in terms of words. <laughs> but it's a proper. It's a proper. Um, it's a proper news production. I mean, there are loads of. They've got about forty websites dealing with forty different rare diseases. MS isn't that rare, and um, they've got editors. And people who work for the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, wow. people who are, who got ill and now are working. And of course, everybody works remotely anyway. One of my favourite editors lives in, I think, Chile. Um, <laughs> so we're all on different time zones, and so everything I write gets edited. It's like the old times for me. But so that was sort of my question. You've still got an outlet for all this because uh, you are constantly thinking of what you would do with the news you know comedy wise weren't you that's been well that has but I'm, I'm not allowed to write anything political it's oh, okay. non-political uh, in fact they pulled one column of mine because i put some jokes in one my point of the column was and this it does tie to your question the point of the column was I'm feeling much better in fact I'm beginning to write half decent jokes now and I put one of the jokes in which is political but not political, which is why is Trump so good at golf? Because there's no lie he can't get out. <laughs> it's a good joke, John. It's a good joke, yeah. <laughs> but they didn't like that. They weren't having that. Well, they published it and they pulled it after two days and there's some trumpets. So I remember reading you again. Well, right, yeah, yes, of course. I don't know if you have some final thoughts about the show. I mean, you must be furiously proud of 30 years Stephen Grant when he replied to your email said that your show Tuesday night at the comedy store has lasted longer than almost all other comedy clubs yeah um, I I think it was in the end it was because the performers loved doing the show I mean it was never a monetary Fortunately. We, we well we made some decent dosh out of it over the years but it was never I never did it for money reasons Mm. Uh, well, I didn't do it altruistically, but there were there's certain parts of it were. The, the comics actually liked honing their skills. A lot of them said, uh, Mio especially, said became a better comic out of doing it. And a lot of comics, uh, because it was a hard show to do. And the comics that became good at it, I mean, like Ian Stone left the show and then came back again. Mm. And he was doing his editing, as he said, quote, unquote. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but he came back and he became one of you know one of my favourite comics I work with. I mean, and a lot of these of comics who did the show 
weirdly, didn't become successes on TV, mainly because they become older and uglier. Um, none of the people who did the edge were particularly uh, pretty in television terms. <laughs> uh, and some became massive stars. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have said uh, Bill Bailey, Brandy, uh, Lee Hurst, mm -hmm. Andy Parsons actually fit what television these days usually wants with somebody who's young and pretty. Yeah. But they all made it. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure to chat to you. And, uh, yeah, we'll have to stay in touch, won't we? Although you told me the other day that never happens. It doesn't happen. <laughs> Fascinating. So there you have it. The end of The Edge, the end of The Edge backstage pass. I'd like to pay tribute to Mr. John Connor, his bravery with the ever-advancing shit show that is MS and his tenacity in continuing to come into the club on a weekly basis, his patience with all the personalities that bounced off the walls in that tiny dressing room, often using himself as a human sponge to absorb some of the shit so that those lone wolf comics could actually work together. Ultimately, it was his show and it was a brilliant show and its demise is the end of an era. As The Edge takes its place in the comedy Valhalla, I'd like to say it has been a privilege to be part of it, and fuck you, John, I do plan to stay in touch. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been the Cutting Edge team. We're here every Tuesday night. Please do come back and see us sometime. To close the show, Please give it up for Mr. Stephen Grimmie! Lots of things I wish I'd done in my life, like invent the pub that was Castro. 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 Yeah, I really wish I'd invented the turf. That was called Astro. 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 But I really wish I'd gone to Cuba at 7am and just said, Morning, Castro. <laughs> Please put your hands together for the cutting edge team! Good!